0: Hey everybody, this is Vegan Theology, episode 14. This is Kevin Hale.
1: And this is Sarah Hale. Good morning, everybody, or whatever time of day it is. I hope you're having a great day.
0: Yeah. How are you, Sarah?
1: I'm great. Yeah. It's a a good day. Yeah, it is. Good to be here with you. Hard-working man.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I think I worked less hours this week, so more like 70, so... That's great, right? <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's luxury.
1: Yeah. hmm Well, we have arrived to Andrew Lindsay's Chapter 4 of Animal Theology. The chapter title is Liberation Theology for Animals. Liberation Theology. So we're going to be getting into a little bit of liberation theology today. I think we've mentioned before we both graduated from a very conservative, fundamentalist slash evangelical Bible college in the '90s. Yeah, I know that while I was there, I did not read any liberation theology. I heard about it a tiny bit, right? And it was, I think it was just one professor I ever remember even mentioning it, and it was kind of dismissed as something we didn't really need to concern ourselves with, was the impression I had mm. at the time.
0: Well, it was a case with a lot of theology right there. I mean, I took a current trends in theology class, and it was an option that you could read at James Cohn's Liberation Theology with uh, that was with Dr. Kennard, mm-hmm. Doug Kennard, And then in a few missions classes, I was a missions major at first, and then I switched to theology after I went on the mission field, ha-ha. That's where I met Sarah, though. <laughs> so anyway, um, but it came up with Badgerow, Ray Badgerow. Mm, okay. And some of the mission classes, um, yeah. Liberation Theology came up. So,
1: And since I've been a student, I haven't taken the time to read Liberation Theology. But whenever it crosses my mind, I think I have, I've had this assumption, I bet you especially given the way my theology has been developing, the direction my theology has been developing, I just have this assumption that I bet you I align pretty easily with liberation theology.
0: Yeah. No, I think we would. I resonated with it, the bit I read about it, while I was in Bible college. Mm-hmm. And, of course, sometimes, I think we we watched that documentary where it was kind of a dramatization of that... Romero? La- Romero, yeah, the Latin American.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, I think he was a priest. And, yeah. you know, sometimes violence came into the picture, and that, I think, more had to do with pushing back against oppression. Yeah. And so that was always the the thing, was when violence entered the equation. Oppress-
1: and, yeah, oppression. And
0: what's interesting about that, though, when the more I think about it, and i literally thinking about it as we're speaking, is that, that was kind of the thing, uh, sort of the the first thing against liberation theology was that it would turn to violence or it could turn to violence, and yet here we are talking about animal theology and no one's questioning the violence
2: mm-hmm.
0: that we're perpetrating on animals. Yeah, you know what I mean. Absolutely, so, very interesting.
1: I think we've quoted. I mean, some of the th- I, as I was thinking about this, I realized some of the quotes that we've. Re- read on this podcast sound like liberation theology. I think we've we've said things like, because someone we know, or we came across the quote that whether you know it or not, theology is always either standing with the oppressor or it's standing with the oppressed. Right. So to be very aware of that as we do theology, who are we siding with? And... Desmond Tutu, for just one of many examples, and I'm sure he was speaking in the context of apartheid si- South Africa, Right, has a quote that says, God is always on the side of the oppressed, not because they are inherently better than the oppressor, but rather simply because they are oppressed. And I think this aligns really consistently with chapter two of the this book that we've already discussed, Andrew Lindsay's chapter on the moral priority of the weak that we should always be looking out for the weak in any situation, the ones who don't have the platform, the connections, the allies, the resources, the options. Those are the ones that Jesus sides with. Those are the ones that God sides with. And so laying it out like that really just snaps it into focus. Whenever you I feel like for me I'm like wow, yeah, that makes it so clear. Look at any situation and if there's a if there's an imbalance of power in a situation, if one side holds all the power and the other side has none, we know where God would side. Right. Or does side. Also I was thinking the fact that a theology that stands up for the oppressed and the weak and the marginalized is considered radical theology is pretty tragic. Right. The fact that within the church, it's not just common accepted theology. that The fact that we still have to explain or defend a theology that maintains that all humans... Have human rights and civil rights, it's hard to believe yeah. that in this day and age, especially within the church, that that's even something that we have to defend or that's considered radical.
0: Right. You know, that just reminds me, too. I just know, you know, when reading certain levels of atheism, and I know in roughly 2006, you know, the whole new atheist movement
2: mm-hmm.
0: kind of came into focus and. You know, many atheist arguments are like one of their big arguments is that well, people who are weak and however you want to say it, they they need a crutch. You need God because you're weak,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and that's that's all it is. You can't think for yourself, or oh, that, that's just a big argument I feel uh, for them. And yet, here we are saying that actually God sides with the weak, and and yet many atheists would claim that they are more ethical than religious people. Mm-hmm. And yet, just the last chapter we read, I mean, it was two chapters ago by Lindsay, The Moral Priority of the Week. Do you know what I mean? That's just ironic for me, yeah. as, I'm, as I'm thinking about it right now, that many atheists would argue that, oh, you need a God because you're weak-minded. And yet, they also claim they're more ethical than religious people. And yet, here we are saying, actually, the more ethical thing is to stand up for the weak, mm-hmm. stand up for the oppressed, I don't know, it's just an interesting Mm
1: -hmm. idea. It is. Yeah, and of course, even though for some reason I find it shocking that thinking this way is considered radical or it's not mainstream thinking, you know, you look at current events, our context right now or any time really, you look at current events around the world and you see that it's undeniably true. That there are still governments and powerful people who absolutely do not seem to believe that every human has dignity and their life has sanctity and eternal right. value. Right. And then going from there is even more depressing. Here we are, here Lindsay is trying to say it's not just humans that matter to God.
2: We it's need animals. to go even
1: further than that. Right. That all creatures are sacred and valued by God when we face the cruel reality that we don't even agree that all human life is sacred right. and has value to God. So, what? <laughs> Lindsay is here preaching the gospel, preaching the good news, and we all need to get on board with it. The introductory paragraph to this chapter has Lindsay turning to liberation theology, and he basically spends this chapter leveling criticism at liberation theology for not being radical enough. Wow. So I'm going to read that introductory chapter. The idea that human beings are unique as a species in having the capacity to cooperate with God in the work of liberation and redemption leads us naturally to a consideration of liberation theology itself. As I show, however, liberation theology in no way fulfills its promise in relation to the oppression of animals. Instead of liberating theology from moral humanocentrism, these theologians appear to enslave us even more firmly to it. Their narrowness in this regard largely arises from a deficient Christology. I try to show how by recovering five basic Christological connections. It is possible to construct a liberation theology which does and inspires justice to the suffering non-human creation." I love that it seems like throughout this book a common theme is coming back to a deficient Christology. He continues to say a, a fully incarnational theology demands that we reevaluate how we treat, how humans treat animals. Right.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because I feel the same way. The more we read Andrew Lindsay's animal theology, the more I feel like he is developing or has developed a more robust theology that, again, we use the word consistency, we use the word holistic. And it's just funny because comparing it to some of the systematic theologies that we were, I want to say, trained in or that we took classes in at Moody Eibelb Institute, specifically Charles Ryrie's basic theology, which was very proof-texting kind of theology throughout, and there were others that we read. This seems way more robust, way more consistent, and I feel like it has an internal logic to it, and it's wonderful. It's actually—I we, talked about logical consequences. I mean, the logical consequences of the gospel, of a robust theology, are going to incorporate all of creation and every one and every sentient being within that creation. So yeah. kudos to Andrew
2: Lindsay. Yeah,
1: yeah I mean, we, re- we remember all the way back to chapter 1, his criticism of Karl Barth was that it was a deficient Christology within Karl Barth that kept him from reverencing the creation that finds its source in Christ. So hes I remember the quote from chapter 1 was, Barth's theology too easily severs the connection between the revealing word and the cosmos in which that word is revealed. So in this chapter, Lindsay examines the writings of primarily two liberation theologians, Gustavo Gutierrez and his pioneering work, A Theology of Liberation, which was written in 1971. Also, the theologian, Leonardo Boff, and his writing, uh, namely, St. Francis, a model for human liberation, written in 1981. Mm. He says, this is some of his criticism, specifically of Gutierrez's work. I want to draw attention to what is, in effect, the narrowness of liberation theology. Liberation concerns oppressed peoples, humankind, growing in humanness. Christ, indeed, is defined as the one who makes humankind truly free. In short, the first major work of liberation theology espouses an uncompromisingly dogmatic humanocentricity. Yeah, it's a little disappointing as you go through the quotes that he has of Guterres. It's it's all about humans over and over again, which again, the fact that that even is considered a new idea or something that needs to be defended is pretty sad. It is. And I want to give him the respect. I want to give Gutierrez the respect that he deserves, that the the, the fact that this even needs to be said, and he has the courage to say it, is wonderful, and I align with that. But Lindsay's criticism is it's humans and humans only that have value in God's eyes. Right. For Guterres, like many other liberation theologians, salvation is closely linked with liberation, if not actually synonymous with it. But Guterres does not maintain this emphasis upon the inclusive nature of cosmic redemption. He continues, Humankind is the crown and center of the work of creation and is called to continue it through its labor. To dominate the earth, as Genesis prescribed, to continue creation is worth nothing if it is not done for the good of humanity, if it does not contribute to human liberation in solidarity with all in history. Lindsay says, Here the underlying hermeneutic of liberation theology is exposed. All human endeavor is to be judged by this one moral maxim, the good of humanity. Neither is there any attempt at qualification. Any other endeavor is not only misdirected, it is worth nothing. Hmm. And as I read that, I think, yeah, that is the way a lot of humans think. That is the way I was brought up. That's a, that's the way a lot of Christians think. That as soon as you start talking about the good of everything, anything else in creation that does not have an obvious direct good for people is suspect why do you care about whales or right. why, why do you care about the rainforest or why do you care about or you know why do you care about the air pollution coming out of that factory or or whatever it's that factory is providing good jobs for people Which is a true statement. It is providing good jobs for those people. But to even criticize or question that maybe we should be concerned with something beyond just humans is really put under suspicion.
0: Right. But we also know, too, that the more you look into that, the more you would examine that factory, you would find that it's actually harming humans. Exactly. And, you know, right now... I mean, just, just one example, right, with The Smell of Money, that new documentary that's coming out. It's going to be streaming soon, by the way. Check it out. We saw it at the Big Sky Documentary Film Festival. But that's just one example where factory farming in North Carolina is actually harming humans in a huge way. So, yeah, is it providing a lot of jobs? Yeah. It's also harming a lot of people and the communities. So just one example.
1: Absolutely. I, I completely agree if if we could be more wise we would un- start to understand the interconnectedness of all creation right. and we can't hurt nature we can't hurt creation without hurting ourselves ultimately we're all connected we don't see that though we've we w- ha- live in this fantasy world where we're completely removed and untouched by the rest of creation.
0: Well, a part of it too, right? It's kind of what we have always talked about. We're working so much that we're overworked and we just want to, I want, I want to say entertain ourselves, but we, we look, we sometimes move to some level of escapism.
2: Yeah.
0: And, and we don't have time to really dig in and examine
2: mm-hmm.
0: everything that's going on in the world. And we're, you know, we're too concerned with our own selves and our own lives and our own survival really.
1: Yeah.
0: And so that right there, that's a massive imbalance. It's
1: a, we, our, we dissociate, which causes us to yeah, be less right, it, reflective. But, but
0: it's our whole economic structure and our yeah. culture that, that creates this imbalance where we don't have time to really examine. And, nobody, and, you know, let's be honest. I mean, the powers that be don't really want us to examine the injustices and the inequities in these systems. So anyway, it's just a little aside. I'll yeah. step down from the... Soapbox. Yeah.
1: According to the view espoused here, our treatment of animals is not a direct moral issue at all. Only the good of humanity is acceptable as a criterion of moral worth. Indeed, implicitly, by the total lack of reference to the world of animals, we may judge that Gutierrez regards animals as without intrinsic worth. Nothing in any of his works suggests otherwise. In practice, this view means that we are right to treat animals as, by and large, we do treat them today as resources, as commodities, as means, as tools, as food, as supplies or suppliers. All such actions are justified so long as the good of humanity remains our aim. Mm. It is important to understand that far from enumerating some radical humanistic principle, Gutierrez simply reinforces, almost by sleight of hand, the historic dismissal of the claims of animals that has characterized both Christian and post-Christian Western societies.
2: Hmm.
1: So again, like, the, on the one hand, he is radical for including all of humanity under the umbrella of God's love and care and the church's love and care within the a liberation theology for people, but he has this major blind spot that there's more than just humans under God's care. Gutierrez fails to envision the possibility of moral oppression beyond the sphere of human-to-human relations. It may be no accident that Gutierrez refers to God-given dominion over animals as the commission to dominate the earth. Despite the fact that many biblical scholars have been at pains since 1970 and before to stress that dominion does not mean domination or despotism, Guterres links uncritically with scholastic tradition to justify his moral point, which put strongly is this, only humans are worth anything. And then Lindsay turns to Leonardo Boff, another liberation theologian, and his writing. Boff uses St. Francis of Assisi as his starting point, which at first seems really encouraging like, okay, this is going to get good. Right. Unfortunately, though, Boff is, he's somehow able to turn even St. Francis and his life into a humanocentric theology. Wow. So let's take a look at Boff. He quotes Saint Bonaventure, who wrote a biography of Saint Francis. Right. Saint Bonaventure said, Saint Francis was filled with a greater gentleness when he thought of the first and common origin of all beings, and he called all creatures, no matter how small they were, by the name of brother or sister, because he knew that they all had in common with him the same beginning. Hmm. So far, so good. But this is what Boff says about that. But what is the moral lesson to be drawn from St. Francis for animal liberation? You may ask. Boff concludes, modern humanity has forgotten that in our activity with nature, we must deal not only with things, but also with something that affects us at our deepest level. We cannot achieve our identity while denying a friendly and fraternal relationship with our natural world. So the message, therefore, remains humanocentric, qualified to be sure by an appreciation of how human identity and conviviality depend upon fraternity with nature. But still, it is humanity, what constitutes human good, that remains the criterion of moral worth. This view is reinforced by the remaining chapters of this book, of Boff's book. For subsequently, Boff spells out the real message of St. Francis, which is predictably concerned with human liberation, the poor in particular. This reminds me of so many times even our arguments for veganism are really selfish at the end of the day. And they're true that yes, we are all connected and anything we do to the animal world, anything we do to their environments will negatively impact human life. And it's true that eating vegan is actually healthier for your body. You'll have better more longevity, and a better quality of life. And you know all of these things are very true, that there are many human benefits to living vegan. But if you think about it, there's a selfish element to those arguments. Mm. The real reason should be more of a morally just, uh, rooted in justice. and respect for God as well. Right. Kind of what we talked about last week, the fact that God suffers with every suffering animal should be the motive, all the motivation we need to stop causing animal suffering.
0: Right. I'm, I'm with you. It's, it just reminds me, you know, we do another show podcast for a local radio station and we have another cohort who's a part of that. and, she's consistently saying we're doing this for the animals, we're doing this for the animals. And, of course,
2: mm-hmm.
0: I've always wanted to talk about all the other reasons as well to build a, what I would argue, a foundation of, of of a big argument as to why we should be vegan from climate change to pollution to ecology to everything. And she's always like, no, it's about the animals. And so it's fascinating that here we are talking Animal theology and it's Mm -hmm. and just your your point right here. Yeah. You know what I mean? And from my point of view, I'm like, let's look at all the possibilities. Of course. Let's build this let's build this robust, massive foundational argument Mm -hmm. that it covers every aspect of everything. And so good luck trying to tear that down. Oh totally.
1: Yeah, because that's what I love about the vegan position if you want to call it a position, is that no matter how you look at it, no matter what angle you come at it from, whether you're concerned about wildlife, species extinction, poor communities of of humans, human health, on and on you go, pollution, and from an animal ethics, animal rights perspective, no matter how you come at it, the answer is always very undeniably clear that it is the right righteous true position to hold
0: 100% and and as we know we both agree with that no and then let's build a more robust all-encompassing holistic argument anyway i'm i'm 100% in agreement
2: yeah
0: and it's just i find it fascinating that she's like let's not talk about all that other stuff let's just talk let's focus on the animals and i'm like why wouldn't you want to build a larger argument and i get it don't get me wrong i get what's happening here i get what we're saying it, there should be no other reason than that this is god's creation
1: or we shouldn't need all the other reasons but right. but yeah they are they they are true all those other reasons for sure yeah so lindsay wants to say about this in his mind and i guess in our mind as well this misuse or misrepresentation of St. Francis, he says, but one conclusion that can be safely drawn from what we know of St. Francis and his life and teachings is this, humanocentricity is deficient. Concern for animals, for all the aspects of the created world, is essential not because these things are pleasing to us uh, humans, though pleasing at least sometimes they may truly be, but because they originate with the creator, The line from St. Bonaventure is much more revealing than Boff admits. It is precisely because of the common origin of all beings with God that all creatures have value and may therefore be termed brothers and sisters. Only God and not man is the measure of all things. So Lindsay finishes up his criticism of Gutierrez and Boff with this statement the criticism that should be made of this liberation theology is not only that its concept of liberation is too narrow, ineluctably it follows that such narrowness results itself from a constricted and exclusive theology. Hmm. So not just their idea of liberation is too narrow, their theology is too narrow. And this is where he gets into his Christology, which, again, seems to be what he continues to come back to. One way forward could be to show that without forcing their text, liberation theologians frequently define the oppressed in terms that could well apply to animals. If the biblical meaning of the poor, for example, is one who does not have what is necessary to subsist, as Guterres suggests, it would not be difficult within the terms of this definition, to find many non-human animals whose lives are deformed, stunted, and deprived of their natural capacities to exist. Among them, incidentally, should be counted the 45 million laying hens in this country, kept permanently on sloping wire mesh, unable to spread even a wing, and confined in conditions of semi-darkness. Another way forward could be to show how a frequently used concept like neighbor includes what its biblical sense intends, namely those who exist alongside us. And it is not infrequently that non-human animals are our neighbors. So I like, he, he brings out two things that I like here, that if we define the poor As those who do not have what is necessary to subsist, then we have to include farmed animals in there Hmm. under that biblical definition of the poor. And if we define neighbor in its biblically intended sense that those who are existing alongside us, we have to include animals in that definition as well.
0: Yeah, very nice.
1: All right, so he has five points about Christology, so we're going to go through those. Let's do it. (laughs) Number one, Christ as co-creator. So as we know, our theology says that Christ was present at creation and all things came through him, the Word. If this is true, Christ is not only of significance to human beings, but as Logos, the decisive fact of being for all creatures. It becomes impossible to separate the human and non-human worlds of creation as though they were absolutely distinct. Of course, different creatures have differing capacities, qualities, relationships, but radically, absolutely distinct, none of them can possibly be. If all things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made, as St. John claims, what is for primary significance is not the distinctions between creatures, but their common origin. It's a very different way to think about it. But it lines up. It, f- it resonates theologically. Right. It's hard to argue against that theologically.
0: Right. It's very foundational.
1: If Christ is the source of not just humans, but the variety of creatures... That were created, then they ha- we all have value, and we're not. You can't draw a line of distinction. Right.
0: And that's also everything we've said from the beginning of this podcast that, that God's character is inherent in the creation. And like you talked about, we've talked about this variety of creation. A lot of times we want to we want to make things as uh, similar to us as we can, and yet God is very diverse and God has created this amazing variety and so it's just one example where again that this argument encompasses mm. that character and that variety that God has made inherent in creation.
1: Yeah. Number 2. Christ as God incarnate. There needs to be a new perception of the assumption of materiality in the incarnation. The fact of God becoming incarnate is central to Lindsay's Christology about animals. So I want to get my head around this. For the word spread himself everywhere, writes Athanasius, above and below and in the depth and in the breadth in the world. The yes of God, the creator, extends to all living, especially fleshly beings. The yuja assumed in the incarnation is not only specifically human, it is also creaturely. If we ponder this fact, we shall be released from hubris in our relationships with other non-human beings. It is important to understand that an exclusivist, overly particularist understanding of the incarnation, if held rigidly, excludes not only animals, but also women. Not only women, but all Gentiles, uncircumcised men as well. So that's fascinating. Basically, if the creatureliness of the incarnate God is held so rigidly that it only applies to humans, well, why not say, oh, it should be so rigid that... It excludes not only animals, but women. Mm. God did not incarnate a female body or a Gentile uncircumcised male bodies. You could hold it so rigidly that the incarnation only means that God cares about circumcised Jewish males. Mm.
0: And you used a Greek word to sound like ouzia? Mm. Uzia which i think might mean essence something to that sense
1: the yes of god the creator extends to all living especially fleshly beings the uzia so the essence
0: uzia you're saying uzia 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 yeah uzia okay
1: so the essence assumed in the incarnation is not only specifically human but also creaturely mm. anything fleshly is what god associates himself with in The incarnation, Mm. you know, and this we're we happen to be in the season of Advent where we're we're contemplating and meditating on the mystery of God becoming a creature, and walking here among us.
0: When it goes back to one of our first episodes where we said that the uh, we use term the the Hebrew Nepheshiah, that when God created humans and when He created animals, the same words, the same Hebrew words were used, nefesh haya, that we're not mm-hmm. different. We're not different than animals. Do you know what I mean? In, yeah. in the creation. Anyway.
1: Yeah. So number three, point number three under Lindsay's Christology, Christ as the new covenant. And he reminds us again, I think for the second time in this book, that the Noahic covenant includes all living things. So the question we must therefore ask is, what must follow for our human relations with other creatures if God the Creator willed to love, actualize, and establish them in a covenant with himself or herself, which is inseparable from the covenant with humanity itself, established in Jesus Christ? The idea that God, God's covenants are not just with humans, clearly stated in Scripture and the Noahic Covenant, is very, very explicitly clear. This covenant is forever, and it's not just with the people. It's with all of the animal kingdom. Mm. And, of course, this is going up against so much of our tradition, which says that animals have absolutely no moral capacity or relationship with God at all. Lindsay says, In opposition, we need to posit the appropriateness and spiritual significance of God's all-embracing covenants. An understanding of the mystery of God's love, which excludes in principle all other life forms, is profoundly impoverished. And here he quotes from Dostoevsky, or Brothers Karamazov. Oh, yeah. Great he, book. He quotes uh, the character Father Zosima, the priest.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So he says, Father Zosima's advice in Dostoevsky's The Brothers Karamazov is a good antidote. The quote is, love all God's creation, the whole of it and every grain of sand. Love every leaf, every ray of God's light. Love the animals, love the plants, love everything. If you love everything, you will perceive the divine mystery in things. And once you have perceived it, you will begin to comprehend it ceaselessly more and more every day. And you will come to love the whole world with an abiding Universal love. Mm. So again, Christ as the new covenant, a covenant with God that does not just include humans, but all of his creation. Yeah. Number four, Christ as the reconciler of all things. Although Bart does not go as far as Athanasius in his significant claim that Christ is the Savior of the universe, there is even in Bart at least one enlightened moment when he seems to claim something very similar. The truth is, he writes, that he is Lord and servant who lives not for himself but for the sake of the creaturely world and humanity, for their deliverance. And thus the order of reconciliation is also the confirmation and restoration of the order of creation. Christ is the reconciler of all things. I like the, the fact that he uses the word order. Yeah,
0: I was just going to say, <laughs> that's amazing. Going to realign things, going to reestablish the way he intended things to be. Yeah, if, right? you,
1: if you remember back to the Hebrew creation narrative, there's disorder, there's order, and there's... Non-order. Non-order. And the Hebrews understood that The goodness of God resides in the way things are ordered, that God brings good order, and then God commissions humans to continue. To
0: maintain the order, right? Push back against chaos.
1: Push back against the disorder. Right, and And
0: part of our creation charge is to, again, establish order and keep mm -hmm. pushing back against chaos. Mm
1: -hmm. And God's order is, yeah, reconciliation of all things. So so that was Christ as the reconciler of all things. And then the last point that Lindsay brings up in his Christology is number five, Christ as our moral exemplar. It is here that we reach the crux of the matter. Liberation theologians are keen to see Jesus Christ as the liberator par excellence. Jesus takes sides with the poor and the oppressed. He makes his own interests of the poor, the sick, the lepers, the sinners, the tax collectors, the Samaritans, argues Sabrino. The crucified in these crucified persons weeps and cries out, I was hungry, in prison, naked. It is difficult to dispute the force of the connection made here. So this last point, Christ as our moral exemplar. Lindsay says, in the light of this, we have to ask again the central Christological question. If the omnipotence and power of God is properly expressed in the form of catabasis, which is humility and self-sacrifice, why should this model not properly extend to our relations with creation as a whole and animals in particular? If liberation theologians are right in locating concern for the poor, the captive, and the vulnerable as the especially right concerns of those who follow Christ, then why is it that the suffering of non-human animals should be regarded as a matter of so little consequence? In short, if we are to ask how it is that we humans are to exercise our dominion or God-given power over non-human animals, then we need look no further than to Jesus as our moral exemplar of power expressed in powerlessness and of strength expressed in compassion. If self-costly, generous loving is the hallmark of true discipleship, then we have to ask, what grounds we have for excluding animals from this proper exercise of Christian responsibility. So God shows God's character by sacrificing himself. Hmm. And he's our moral exemplar. So we need to think about sacrificing ourselves for the rest of creation. So just to kind of fasten these in our mind, the five Christological points that Lindsay would love for us, I think, to adopt. Number one, Christ as co-creator. Christ is the creator and the source of all of creation, so it's all valuable. Two, Christ as God incarnate. The incarnation shows God's love and fraternity, if you will, with all fleshly creatures. Mm. Number three, Christ as the new covenant. God makes covenants that encompass not just humans, but all of God's creation. Number four, Christ is the reconciler of all things. Bringing order in the form of reconciliation is what Christ does. And five, Christ is our moral exemplar. Again, emptying himself, showing power in powerlessness, showing showing his strength in his compassion. Mm. So that's Lindsay's Christology in a nutshell.
0: Very nice. Very nice Christology. We should definitely adopt that, examine that, and check it out.
1: Yeah. So Lindsay always finishes his chapters with, these are going to be the objections to what I've said, which I think (laughs) is so fun. Yeah, it's good stuff. To look over.
0: It's legit.
1: (laughs) Uh, One of them jumped out at me, the second objection. He says, the second objection finds the language of oppression and liberation used with regard to animals strained, inappropriate, So, you know, you can't really take the language of oppression and liberation and apply that to animals. Right. Is the language of oppression such as may be used in relation to slaves, blacks, Jews, gypsies, gays or women really appropriate for dogs and cats, let alone battery hens or laboratory rats I use the word oppress in precisely the way suggested by the Oxford Dictionary to overwhelm with superior weight or or numbers or irresistible power, to govern tyrannically, keep under by coercion, subject to continual cruelty or injustice. This, I contend, is precisely what we do to animals since we hunt, ride, shoot, fish, wear, eat, cage, trap, exhibit, factory farm, and experiment upon billions of animals every year. Those who wish to deny that such treatment is oppression or is oppressive have to deny that our treatment of animals is a moral issue at all." Yeah, I like I like when he gets specific. Like
2: right, that. yeah.
1: That, okay, if you don't wanna call it oppression, you don't want to say that they need liberation. Well, what what would you call it? <laughs>
0: you know? yeah, that's awesome.
1: <laughs> what word? Yeah, is acceptable <laughs> or you know honest.
0: Right. <laughs> no, <laughs> he pulls the punches. That's <laughs> awesome.
1: Yeah, he. I also like he uses the word homo tyrannicus <laughs> for people. <laughs> uh. Uh. (laughs) Yeah, there was one other thing let's see on the other hand a moment of reflection will help us to appreciate that for centuries so called civilized cultures have oppressed other humans usually the most vulnerable and also that a not insignificant number of human beings seem to care for neither battery hens nor battered children that hit Especially once again, given current events.
0: Right. Mm. I'm,
1: I'm just going to say this and maybe we'll cut this out. But no, I'll say it. Um, this week, I've really been reminded of one of Ricky Gervais's quotes. Yeah. And I'm going to try to figure out how to say this without using expletives that he uses. He says, you know, people say that we don't need to be concerned about animals because we, we really should be concerned about humans. And he's like, but you 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 start to notice that those people don't do anything for humans either. Right. And you know, I work in a Christian context, a Christian a Christian institution, and they definitely have this attitude. Why would we concern ourselves with animals when we need to be about human beings? And I've just noticed the last few weeks as thousands upon thousands, tens of thousands of civilians have been killed in Gaza mm-hmm. in the last month. And the world is just standing by, not intervening. And it really hit me, because here at my Christian institution, nobody is saying a word. Right. It's not uh, something that's uh, culturally appropriate to even bring up. At my Christian institution that these civilians are being murdered and yeah it really struck me not only do you not care about animals but when it really comes down to it you don't really care about humans either right that's that sounds really harsh and maybe it's an oversimplification uh, i really shouldn't say they don't care about humans but when you say you care about humans you you care about a very specific group of humans
0: Right. And I think it's it just reminds me of Angela Davis, right? If you're not if you're not talking about racism and that level of oppression, then when you're within the same ethnicity, then it becomes like a class warfare. And I don't know, I was just thinking of that. And I, I, I think kind of what I'm reminded of many things here, but even kind of what you're saying, if you practice compassion towards mm. animals, mm it's likely that you're going to practice more compassion towards humans. Exactly. You know what I mean? Like practicing compassion and generosity and all those amazing attributes of the spirit and godliness, you practice them at all. You're you're just going to grow in those attributes. Do you know what
1: I mean? I know. I remember hearing an animal (laughs) activist years ago say something along these lines. Like if you bring up your child with the ethos of don't kill that spider that spider has every right to live just as much right as you have just because you're bigger doesn't mean you have the right to kill them if you bring up your child with those kinds of ethics the animal rights activist was saying do you really think they're going to go out and be racist or homophobic or because if if we teach them to value the lives of even a spider they're not going to be all these other things sexist racist whatever right. and I mean at the moment I was like when I first heard that I was like I don't know I don't I don't know if there's really a connection there but more and more I am convinced that that is true what you just said the more we are consistently seeing the value of all creation the more when when there is injustice towards a different group of people or whatever, we cannot countenance it. Or
0: species, can, yeah.
1: Yeah, we cannot stand by and not feel the fact that this is wrong. This is an injustice and it needs to stop.
0: Right, 100%. I'll
1: just read the last paragraph. I'm not sure if I will keep it on, but um, this is how he ends the chapter. Shifts of consciousness, sometimes gradual, sometimes dramatic, are not beyond the wit of the human species. What is significant is that sometimes dream-like visionary hypotheses suddenly acquire a powerful hold on the collective imagination and release new bursts of moral energy. The divine right of humans may be an idea whose time has gone. That humans should use their power in defense of the weak, especially the weak of other species, and that humans should actively seek the liberation of all beings capable of knowing their oppression and suffering maybe an idea whose time has come. Mm. So we're going to push liberation theology into new radical arenas. There
0: we go. Arenas. Wow. <laughs> Wasn't radical enough. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I
0: mean, look at this guy. It's amazing. Amazing what he's doing.
1: Yeah. I'm learning so much. <laughs> I am. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's I love awesome.
0: It. All right. Well, hey, thanks for listening to us in this podcast. Hope you uh, find it valuable.
1: Yes. Thank you very much, everybody. Have a great day.
0: Yeah. Later.